morning, church. Great to see you all. Welcome to campus. And if you're joining us online today, we're thrilled you're with us. It's, uh, it's cold outside, a little snow, but we're hardy. We're Hoosiers. We're good to go. So welcome, everyone. So thrilled to have you. It uh, wasn't Wednesday night this past a beautiful night of worship. Didn't we have a great time? If you weren't able to come, listen, the next time we do this, you'll want to show up. We had over 500 people on the campus that night, and it was a wonderful experience of engagement with God and His Spirit. It was a beautiful time, and I know if you were here, you were blessed by it. So thanks to the worship team and all the tech team for their work on that. Did a great, great job. It was a wonderful evening, so thank you. We are talking about secrets of the kingdom of God And I say secrets because that would imply that maybe they're hidden or somehow mysterious, but it's not that way. When I say secrets of the kingdom, I am referring to things that are actually hiding in plain sight for everyone to see, but they're not obvious to everyone apparently because folks miss them. And so we've been talking about ways that we can uh, unfold and reveal some of these secrets that, that God has for us. And I also have made this, uh, this statement so far in the first two weeks, that this is a series of messages that, is, that are more confessional for me. These are areas of my life that I know a lot about because I struggle with them myself. And, and so I have some insight. I, I wrestle with them now for over 50 years following Jesus. And there are two ways that you can learn some of these secrets of the kingdom. One is that you can learn them by trial and error over a period of time like I have, or someone who's already learned them can teach you. And so this is an advantage for you. You can learn from my mistakes, and I hope it adds insight to you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to go to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Begin there. I want to talk about a change of heart, talk about attitudes of the heart that we need to adjust, some attitudes we need to push away from us, and other attitudes we need to to bring in close to us, And I hope by the end of the the morning that you'll have a better perspective on these things so your life can be fulfilled and blessed. So Deuteronomy chapter 15, and one of our customs here occasionally is to stand to hear God's word. Today, since you've come in from the cold, and this is a warm, cozy place, and you'll be likely to fall asleep in about five minutes if you don't circulate a little more, let me invite you to stand if you're able to hear God's word. Just keep it moving. Come on, sir. Stay with me. Beginning at verse 7, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites. Give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them. Do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land, and there's nothing new under the sun. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell, sell themselves to you, serve you six years. In the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God 
has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. May God enlighten and instruct us through his word. Amen? You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, Jesus was preaching a sermon one day on this subject. And we can find that sermon in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Toward the end of that message, he uses this phrase. It's verse 38 of Luke, chapter 6. He said, give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, that is a familiar verse to some of us, maybe many of us. And the mistake we make is to apply this promise that Jesus makes only to money matters, financial matters, given it shall be given unto you. But the context of this sermon Jesus is preaching is very, very important. The two verses just ahead of verse 38 are these, when he says, therefore be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So we note that Jesus is simply talking about the broad principle of giving, giving to those people around you in all sorts of ways. And when you give, God, God promises that it will be given back to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Now, the context for that phrase, which some of us are, are happy to re- repeat over and over again, it's, it's just got a nice feel to it, a nice rhythm to it. The context for that is an Old Testament instruction given to landowners in the day that when a field was ready to harvest, you would send in the hired harvesters in the middle of the field, the central portions of the field, and then the instruction from the Lord was that the perimeter of the field, the corners of the field, would be left to the poor. And so the poor could bring a basket with them, and they could harvest wheat for their own sustenance and for their family. Now, this is where the phrase came from, because if you were poor and you needed this grain to feed yourself and your family, you would fill it good measure. You wouldn't fill it half full, a quarter full. You would fill it completely full, good measure, pressed down, and then you would press the grain down into your basket and shake it together, and you would shake it to eliminate all the air pockets within the grains. And then you would cause it to run over. I mean, you, you wouldn't want it to be near the top. This is your sustenance. This is how you stay alive. And so you fill it all the way to the top so that it's actually spilling over the top. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And so that makes perfect sense. Jesus is actually communicating that whatever you give, you're going to get a lot more of it in return. This is a universal principle with God. You always receive back more than you give. Now, this is not a hidden secret of the kingdom of God. This is, this is completely in the light. This is altogether obvious. No one's confused about this. It's just that folks don't believe it. But it is absolutely true. This is a principle of the kingdom of God. If you give, God will give back to you. There's nothing you can do about it. Listen, you can give with a bad attitude, a wrong motive, you know, sarcastically and grudgingly, you know, feeling compelled to do it for some reason that you don't agree with. You can have the, the worst possible motives. And I'm just telling you, if you give, God will bless you. You can't stop it. 
The world can't stop it. The devil can't stop it. Your spouse can't stop it. A, a, a friend of yours with a bad attitude can't stop it. There's nothing that can stop the blessing of God from coming to you when you give. It's the way, it's, it's just God's move. This is true in any category. If you only think money, then you'll miss a lot of opportunity. That's why Jesus said, don't condemn, don't judge, but forgive. Be merciful to people in all of your relationships, in all of your words, in all of your effects. Be generous and give, and you will be blessed as a result. And so this is a wonderful promise. Now, here's where one of the danger points lies. Because we know God blesses us for giving, it can easily tip over and become the motive for our giving. This is where we don't want to go. This is not God's intention. I mean, God doesn't say, boy, if I could just encourage my people to catch a vision for having more stuff, that would be amazing. That's not God's, that's not God's purpose. That's not his point. But what happens to us in our fallen human nature is we see the receiving part of giving as a motivation for giving rather than merely the reward for giving. When we see it as the reward for giving, that's the healthy place. If we see it as the motivation for giving, that's the wrong place. That's why Jesus preceded this promise by saying, judge not, you shall not be judged, condemn not, so forth. So if, if you give forgiveness, then the abundance of forgiveness will come to you. Let me put this statement on the screen for you, maybe it'll clear it up. There's nothing in scripture that says we should make personal gain our motive for giving. God doesn't want us to catch the vision of getting. He wants us to catch the vision of giving. Proverbs 16.2 actually says, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Again, in James 4.3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Look on the screen with me again. This is from Luke 6. This is the sermon Jesus is preaching. And these are the preceding verses to the ones we've already rehearsed from Luke 6. And he said, give to everyone who asks. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, do also to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. So the message of Jesus in this sermon is clear. It's just as clear as it can be. He's, he's inviting us to give. If Jesus entitled this sermon from Luke 6, he would say, give. Give to those who ask you. Give to those who can't pay you back. Give love to those who don't deserve it. Give mercy to those who have wronged you. Give the kind of treatment you would hope to receive from others. Give, 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 and give some more. And oh, by the way, when you do, your heavenly Father will make sure that you get more in return. And that's how it works. The last phrase of that, verse 30, says, He's kind to the unthankful and the evil. What's that about? He's just reminding them that, that once... Once they were slaves, once they were in darkness, and he's reminding us, once we were lost, once we were blind, we could not see, we were without hope, but God made a way for us. God broke through the darkness of our own hearts and the lostness of our own souls. He broke in to this world and offered his own son, Jesus Christ, and suddenly the light came to the world, and we saw this glorious light, and we have found hope 
because of our relationship with Jesus. And so God is merciful toward us. And so we must remind ourselves that we were completely undone and without hope until God made a way for us. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, let's talk about then these conditions of the heart that need adjustments perhaps. The first two are conditions that we want to avoid in our lives, and the last two are those that we want to cultivate in our lives. It's on your outline. Here's the first thing, and it's the selfish heart. Everyone say selfish. That's a natural, that's a natural flow for us, isn't it? Uh, verse 9 of our text from Deuteronomy 15, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Now, here God is talking about selfish thoughts as being wicked. Selfishness whispers that we won't have enough or that God won't be faithful to meet our needs if we give. God says, don't allow your heart to think that way. And so we, we, have, we have this tendency to be selfish. We're all born selfish. You know that little angel you take home from the hospital, that newborn, precious little pumpkin, so sweet, so nice, so soft, smells so new and fresh lovely little thing. She's evil. (laughs) She doesn't seem like it. She's she's a bad girl. (laughs) She's born that way. You know, the first first sounds babies make are not ah or mommy or daddy. It's wah, which is feed me, change me, hold me, and right now. Every Every person, every parent in the English-speaking world knows that the most popular word that a two-year-old speaks is mine. Mine. That's mine. Clearly, selfishness is rooted deeply in all of our hearts. And if you doubt it, uh, just try helping yourself to a pork rib or a chicken wing off of a man's plate. (laughs) This is a good way to lose a hand. It's not advisable. Perhaps you haven't uh, noticed most men do not like to share food. (laughs) Not at all. Most women, on the other hand, are happy to share their food. Have you ever watched a group of women at a restaurant? You'll witness more food swapping than you'll find at the commodities pit at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I mean, food's just flying across the table everywhere. This, this is uh, an explanation why women assume that their men will be more than happy to share his plate with them. She is wrong. There are two very strong points coming out of this illustration. A husband, for example, and a wife drive up to the menu speaker of a fast food joint. They hear a voice, welcome to Burger Circus, may I take your order? And the man, the man leans forward and speaking in a voice too loud, this is, what, this is what we do. Speaking too loud, I'll take a double cheeseburger, some fries, and a Coke. Then he turns to his wife, says in a gentle voice, honey, what would you like? And she says, I'm not really hungry. I'll just, I'll just have some of yours. He thinks some of mine. I ordered mine. (laughs) If you want something. So this is what the man is thinking. He doesn't say it. He just turns to his wife and says, honey, sweetheart, 
if you want something to eat, that's great. I'll, I'll order it for you. She says, no, I'm not really hungry. And he knows half of his fries are gone. So the two points in play here, one is that we all tend to be selfish, and the other is stop doing that to your husbands. It's just not, a, it's not helpful, it's not fruitful, it doesn't leave us in a good mood at all. Leave our food alone. How hard is it? My point is we're all selfish. And the default condition of the human heart is to hoard and to avoid sharing with anyone. But then a loving Heavenly Father comes along and says to us, look, I want to deal with you at that wicked, selfish heart that makes you, that makes you a, a getter and a receiver, but not a giver. I want to deal with that part of you. I want to make you like me. That's the whole point. Um, I need someone to give me $100. Just, oh, good. Thanks, Aaron. 100 bucks. That is 100 Thanks. Appreciate that. So there's a selfish heart. <laughs> the second attitude of your heart that needs to be cultivated out of you is a grieving heart. Everyone say grieving. You all know what that means, to grieve. Look at verse 10 of our text, Deuteronomy 15. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved. So give to that guy in need, and don't be sad about it when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. Now, notice the reward for being a giver is a blessed life. Do you notice that? It's a wonderful promise. When you give, you will be blessed. And he will bless you in everything you put your hand to. This is just a magnificent promise. This, it is so great and so grand. So he instructs us not to grieve in our hearts after we've been obedient in giving. Now, it's important not to let yourself start grieving over what you could have done with the money. And this happens to us. And now, again, I'm confessional about this. This is a struggle for me. My wife has sold residential real estate for over 30 years now, and she encounters this occasionally in her business uh, because buying a, a home is one of the biggest expenses most people have in their life. And you've all had a, t a tinge of this to one degree or another. You make a commitment a big commitment and because you love the house and it's your dream home and it's just everything you want. And then you go home and you go, I just signed a mortgage that I'm going to be paying on until Jesus comes. And you go, oh no, what have I done? And, you, and so folks develop a thing called buyer's remorse. And you, and you can get it for the little items if you buy something impulsively and you get home and you go, what did I do that? And, and so this buyer's remorse happens in people's lives, and it's true when people give, that we, f we feel some grief about it. We feel sad about it. Why did I do that? Why did I let that happen? So here's my point. I'll put this statement on the screen. Maybe this will clarify. Selfishness can attack us before we give. You know, if I, if I give, I might not have enough. If I give, maybe God won't be faithful this time, and, and I won't be able to meet my obligations. God, God's faithful to other people. He's trustworthy in other people's lives, but not in mine. And so I'm, you know, my selfishness doesn't allow me to open my hands and to actually give. So on the, on, the, on, the, on the front end, selfishness can attack our giving, but grief can attack us after we give. So we have this remorse about it, this sadness. 
And the same thing can happen with our giving. This buyer's remorse. That means that you have to guard your heart, not only before you give, but after you give as well. Is this making sense? I know a lot about this because I suffer with this. I suffer on both sides of giving. I have to wrestle with this. This whole issue of selfishness and grief, you know, if, you're not, if you don't wrestle with this like two or three times every day, you're not doing it right. This is a challenge for us humans because our default is to be selfish. And our default is to be sad after we've been generous. It's goofy. God actually, God actually tells us in Deuteronomy that it's wicked. It's wicked to be that way. Yee. Boy, that's pretty sobering, isn't it? So, we, so we've got to make an adjustment. There's got to be a change of heart in these areas. Now, let me tell you the best way to combat grief after you give. You know, that buyer's remorse. I wish I hadn't have done that. The best way to combat it is to get perspective regarding who owns everything to begin with. Whose stuff is it to start with? I asked for $100 a minute ago, and Aaron came up quickly, handed me the $100. Let me tell you why he was the first one up and came up quickly to give it to me. It's because before the service, I gave him the $100. And I said, when I ask for $100, jump up and give it to me. He goes, fine. And he, and he came to, and gave me the $100, and I bet you he didn't have any grief. Didn't have any, any emotional attachment to it at all. Why? It wasn't his $100. So he didn't really give me $100, did he? All he did was return it to me. And when you keep the right perspective about who owns everything... It'll take the grief away. It's giving it back. I'm, see, I'm benefiting from that right now. That's helping me. So look on the screen with me. When we get God's perspective on money, when we understand that God owns it all, it's easy to give it when he asks for it. It's just a lot easier. Now let's talk about the two conditions of our heart that we want to cultivate, we want to have. The first is a generous heart. Everyone say generous. Generous. How great is that? Generous. Verse 14, again from our text, you shall supply him, that is the needy person, liberally, generously from your flock, from your threshing floor, your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. So we're not to be stingy in our giving. We're to be generous. The old nature, the old person, the old man, the old part of us, the corrupt part of us is greedy, stingy, and selfish. Our new nature, like Jesus, and the more like Jesus we become, the more liberal and generous we will be. That's a fact. That's the truth. One man said it this way. I love this statement. He said, I was born selfish, but I was born again generous. Don't you love that? The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Well, okay, recreate that part of me. So my spiritual person, like your spiritual person, 
wants to be more like Jesus. Jesus has come into our lives, taken up residence within us, and so at a spiritual level, we want to be more and more like him. This is why the people of God are inclined to do and obey and be like Jesus. So what has to happen in our lives practically and functionally is we have to have a renewed mind about it. We have to retrain our thinking about it. We have to retrain our attitudes about it by the renewing of your mind. This is a biblical phrase. So our spiritual person wants to be generous while our, while our, our natural person wants to be selfish. And so we have to renew our mind to accommodate the new spiritual condition that we experience. Let me say it one more time. I was born selfish, but I was born again generous. God, that's so encouraging to me. So my new nature, my new nature can influence me and cause me to more and more be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's what we want. So a generous heart. Now, here's the, here's the last point I want to make. And that is an, an attitude of our heart that we want in our lives, which is a grateful heart. Everyone say grateful. Grateful. Verse 15, again, from our text, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, command you this thing today. So this is a reminder. This is a reminder that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, but God, being rich in his mercy, he extricated them from that bondage and liberated them and set them free. And, and, and so gratitude should be the response to that. So why did God instruct the Israelites to remember that they had been slaves? Because it would fill their heart with thanksgiving and with gratitude for what he had done. When we allow God to remind us that we used to be slaves and that everything we have is by his gracious hand, it will help us to be also grateful. Let me put this on the screen. When you're grateful, we're generous. Genuine gratitude, gratitude to God, is a rare and powerful thing. And now this is it. This is how I want to reveal a secret. Hidden in plain sight, when we are grateful, we are generous. And this is the kind of heart that God wants to, wants to, wants to generate in us. When we are grateful, it unleashes the power of God. This creates low pressure spiritually when we're thankful, when we're grateful. And the Spirit of God flows to low pressure. Sinful, selfish, wicked attitudes and heart conditions create high pressure, holds the Spirit of God back from our lives. Gratitude is a powerful, powerful force in our lives, creating low pressure, and the Spirit of God flows right to it. A thankful heart, a grateful heart. When Beth and I were planning to get married, I had made plans to go on to grad school and I was going to go to Asbury Theological Seminary. And Asbury Seminary is in a little town in Kentucky called Wilmore, Kentucky. It's just a couple of thousand people. And when the students are in town, you know, it doubles in size, that sort of thing. And so it's, it's a very modest little town and it's really hard to find places to live in Wilmore as a student. And 
most students have to commute from other communities in the surrounding areas. And we went into Wilmore looking for a place to rent. This was a few weeks before we got married. And we found a house right on the main street there in Wilmore owned by a woman named Bernice Deering. Bernice Deering. And she had a for rent sign on the front of her house. Perfect. We pulled in there and Bernice came to the door. Bernice was a uh, little past middle age nurse, widowed. Her husband was a pastor. And so she's the widowed pastor's wife living in this very modest house in Wilmer, Kentucky. And months before this, she had put a second story on her house, just went up, put a second story on and made an independent apartment in the second story, which she was going to rent. And we inquired about this beautiful new apartment, very modest, but furnished and perfect. And she said, well, it's available, but uh, but you have, there's a waiting list. And I said, how many people are in front of us? She said, 22. <laughs> well, that's not promising. But I said, put us on the list. You know, we were number 23. And so for the next uh, handful of weeks, Beth would call Bernice every week. Bernice, uh, where are we on the totem pole here? And she said, well, uh, you're, you're, you're number 18 now. Some people have fallen off. And then the next week you're down, you're, you're, you're only 11 down. And the third week it was something that there are only five people in front of you. And so what I did was I went to Bernice and said, here's the first month's rent. In fact, I'm going to pay, we're, we're not moving here until August, but here's, here's July's rent. And I paid her in advance, advance. And I said, does that move move us at all on the list? She said, uh, yes, you're number one on the list now. <laughs> the rent was $125 a month, including utilities. And we moved in with Bernice. And every time Bernice would make a big pot of vegetable soup, she would make too much. And she'd bring it up to us. And she loved to bake. And fresh bread was one of her specialties. And she always made too much. And she had an old washer and dryer that she used out on her back porch. She said, you're welcome to it. It was all good until in the deep winter months when, when things froze and couldn't use a washing machine. When we first moved in, she said, I just, you just have one rule, no children. We said, no problem. We were pregnant the first year. <laughs> we went to Bernice and said, we're going to have a baby next May. She said, well, a newborn baby shouldn't make too much noise. <laughs> Bernice is in heaven today. 
but we learn generosity from her. When I was 19 years old, I'd only been a Christian a short while, and I was, I was, and I continue to be, someone coined this phrase years ago, and they called it a God chaser. There's a book entitled God Chasers. Some, some of you read it. I put myself in that category. I'm interested in what in the world God is doing. I'm very interested in that. I've made a life of chasing after Jesus. I want to know what in the world God is doing because I want to be in on it. You may wonder why we have done so many of the things we've done over the years and why we're doing what we're doing right now in so, so many strategic ways. It's because your pastor pays attention to what in the world God's up to. Someone said to me years ago that you will do the best with your life if you find the will of God for your generation and then fling yourself into it. And I just think that makes perfect sense. I am constantly amazed. I'm shocked by the number of Christian leaders who apparently don't have a clue about what in the world God's up to. Just like this, you know, if, it, if it's not happening in my tribe or in my denomination or in my, my purview, then it must not be happening. Dude, pay attention. It's a big world out there and God is in it. And he is at work. And you may wonder why, you know, why is the pastor leading us down that road? Because I take you with me in my chase. And off we go. And God has honored that. And when I was 19, I was a God chaser. And there was a conference I learned about in California that was a cutting-edge event that I knew I was going to learn from very uh, high-level statesmen in the, in the Christian faith. And it just had all of the attributes that I was, I was drawn to, but I thought... This is not even possible because I'm 19. I don't have any money. And, you know, it was a summer job just trying to get enough money for gas in the car. And so there I was. I was just stuck. So I just gave up on the idea. And just a few days later, the phone rang at our, my parents' home. And my mother answered the phone. And she said, it's for you. And I took the call. And it was a friend of our family's, and his name was Gene Leak, and his wife Vivian, and Gene had called, and he, he was a landowner and a farmer in the area, and he was very successful, and he loved God, and Vivian was a wonderful saint of God, and Gene Leak says to me, he was in his 60s, and I was 19 years old, and he said, he said, I've been praying for you, and he said, I, I just I felt like God was telling me that you have an interest in going to that conference in, Colorado, in, in California. And I said, well, I do. I've been praying about that. And he said, well, I'm glad to hear that because, because God's asked me to pay your, all of your expenses to go out there. And I have a friend out there in Anaheim where the event is taking place, and he's agreed to let, let you stay with him for the whole week. It's a week-long event. He play, paid my plane fare and all of that. I get to Anaheim, and his friend picked me up, and what he didn't tell me was his friend was the, was the resident director of a big house uh, full of heroin addicts. So I lived in this halfway house. I learned as much living in the halfway house, I can tell you, as I did in the conference. But it was a life-changing life event for me. It was an amazing thing. So at 19, I just went out there and did all that and came home. It was a great blessing to me. After Beth and I were married and we moved here to Muncie, uh, and this, this story has, is not uh, seeking any empathy at all. No, uh, this is, 
this is not about that. It's just a matter of fact. Beth and I did not take a vacation the first 10 years that we were here. And that's not because folks wouldn't have allowed us to take a vacation or any of that. It was pretty straightforward. We couldn't afford to go anywhere. And so just, you know, subsisting week by week, month by month was all we could manage. And so going on vacation, I mean, that, that implies, you know, extra cash or whatever. So that was out. But there was a couple in the church. Their names were John and Mary Wybrew. Those are names familiar with some of the old timers around. And they were so gracious and so wonderful, godly people, uh, both in heaven now. And they owned a little cottage uh, up on Lake Webster in North Webster, Indiana. And the Methodist Church had a, had a campground there called Epworth Forest. And they owned this little cottage, just very modest little two-bedroom, you know, about 1,000 square feet. It wasn't on the water. It wasn't on the lake. It was a couple of blocks off the lake, but that's, that was great. And they said, would you like to take your young boys and go up there and spend a week in our little cottage? Well, it was magic. It was just wonderful. We said, yes, are you sure? Because, you know, two boys and all that. First year we were there, they did break a lampshade. It was inevitable. Anyway, another part of the story. <laughs> Don't break that. <laughs> Too late. For six, we knew when we were going. We knew the week we were going. And for six months prior to that, Beth and I had to save up money because the goal was we will, we will go and stay at that little cottage for the week and enjoy the lake best we can. Uh, and one night during the week, we'll actually take the boys to the pizza shop and we'll buy some pizza. But we had to save up for about six months, you know, to get an extra 15 bucks together so we'd have enough money, you know, to go to the restaurant. And it was a great blessing. You said, well, that, that sounds pitiful. Listen, those are the best days of our lives. We were, we were so rich. We were completely full. We long for days like that. They're precious to us. But along the way, we learned generosity. We had it modeled for us by people who didn't have any obligation to be nice to us or to be generous toward us or loving toward us. But we learned what it looked like. And so that's been our desire over these years. To cultivate gratitude and generosity for all the things that God has given. And therein lies a great secret that will release amazing power in your life. He who has an ear, let him hear. Did you get it? Let's pray. Lord, today we are reminded that you want us to catch the vision of giving, not receiving, that you want us to be cheerful givers and that a properly focused heart is more excited about the giving part than the receiving part. So Lord, I pray, hear our prayer, hear our prayer, remove from us selfishness, 
and grief when we give and fill us with generosity and with gratitude. Lord, that's our prayer today. And if that's your prayer today as well, say amen. Would you stand with us?